The Sons of Liberty is a politically neutral organization. We believe that the Judeo-Christian ethic has provided the principles upon which this nation was founded. It is our belief that these principles provide not only the foundation and framework for American government and society, but are also essential to the maintenance of a fair and just society. All program content is based on a Christian biblical worldview. One of you said to me recently that we shouldn't rock the boat. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you that I am a boat rocker. Good day, America. Welcome, Christians, conservatives, constitutionalists, liberals, libertarians, communists, Islamists, LGBTQ, RSTV, WXYZ people. All the boat rockers are in the house. And anybody else I may have missed to the Sons of Liberty radio show here on Red State Talk Radio, where we use the Bible and the Constitution, not to see who's on the right or left, but who is on the straight and narrow. I'm your host, Tim Brown, coming to you live from the U.S.-occupied state of South Carolina. The editor at SonsOfLibertyMedia.com and for our Muslim friends, I'm the infidel that Allah warns you about. I hold to the book, the Bible, as the authoritative word of God. Glad that you guys have joined us this morning. If you'd like to check us out online, please do so. SonsOfLibertyRadio.com and also SonsOfLibertyMedia.com. In fact, if you're listening by way of Red State Talk Radio and you want to watch the video portion of the radio show, that's right. You can see the face that's made for radio. Head over to SonsOfLibertyMedia.com. <clears throat> Excuse me. And there you're going to find on the left side of the page, Bradley's show from Saturday. That's two hours worth of Bradley Dean. So if you miss that or you just want to replay it again, uh, you, you can do that there. And uh, you can do that up until 3 o'clock Eastern today, at which time he'll be live in that little area right there. On the right side of the page is where we're at. Click on that, the play button, blow it up, whatever device you've got, and then look for the Rumble icon in the bottom right-hand corner. Click on that, and you can join us in the chat on Rumble. And uh, it's great to see you guys in there this morning. And also... <clears throat> We are streaming live to Rumble at Sons of Liberty Radio Live. Also on BeforeIt'sNews.com, top of the page there, and we appreciate those guys giving us a spot on their platform as well. Uh, right up under where we're streaming live is where you can sign up for our email newsletter. Those go out once a day between 7 and 8 p.m. Eastern, and uh, they include the morning show archive. So anything that you hear in the show, there'll be links there or any of that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah. Just be sure to check it out there. Get signed up for it before 7 tonight, and you should get it this evening. And then also, if you want uh, to know what's going on in the ministry of the Sons of, of Liberty, uh, go to Sons of Liberty Radio Live. Uh, sign up for the email right off the front page there. That goes out once a week on Saturdays. It tells you what we've been involved in, what's coming up, and things of that nature. So if you want to keep up with that, you can do so there. Uh, finally, if you agree with our message, you would like to help support us in keeping us out there doing all the things that we do, there's a donate button at the top of sonslibertymedia.com. Click on that, make a one-time donation. Or you can partner with us monthly as a son or daughter of Liberty. And guys, we really do appreciate you and your support. Now, I just, I'm going to tell you, I <laughs> went out um, the other day and uh, we are, we have 12 new chicks that we are currently letting live in our tub in, in our bathroom. And uh, it, like, it's amazing. Within three weeks, they're three, three times the size that they are. And uh, so we bought some. This time we went a little cheaper route. Uh, we bought some boxes that, you know, 
they're, they're wooden boxes that they're crates for things that, that, you know, get shipped. Unfortunately, they don't have lids. So it was going to be up to me to make lids and getting time to do all this is like, yeah. So I made the cutout so I can join the two boxes together yesterday, got the door cut for the, for the chicken door. And hopefully today I'm going to get lids on those things. And then I got, I was going to make a way to just cut the bottom out the floor and put it on hinges. And that way, when I want to clean it, I just drop the bottom. Instead of trying to sweep it out like I did with this other, I made a door on the front and pulled all that out. So that's that's my projects that I'm doing now. And it's a it's a much this is a much cheaper way to go because I bought the little boxes for like ten bucks. They're like four by three by three or something like that. So they're they're plenty big enough to house some chickens. Okay, and uh, this is just an idea for you guys if you're looking to do that. This is a cheap and inexpensive way compared to the big one that I did which I'm grateful for. It's going to last a while. We may have to put some sides on or something like that. But anyway, that's what's going on in the Brown house today. We're going to, we're going to be doing some of that. But for many of you, um, you you've got, you, you had chance yesterday. Some people don't get around the word of God. They don't get around the people of God, except at this time of year and in the winter. And that's it. And half the time, they don't get enough good news. They don't get enough of the truth to save them. I mean, this is, they don't get it. You know, it's, it's talk about all kinds of stuff. I mean, I, I don't know if I've told you guys, I, I, there was a time where it snowed really bad here. We have a church that's literally right beside us. Their property joins up against us. We went over there. I forget how many kids we had at the time, seven or eight. And uh, we took up a pew there, and um, uh, I knew I was in trouble when I opened up the bulletin, and it listed the women as deacons. Um, but nevertheless, the pastor was gone. Um, he had a retired pastor come in, and it was preaching, and he was going to preach on dreams. And he went to the passage there in Matthew where uh, Joseph had taken Mary and Jesus, and he, they went down into Egypt. And I was talking about the dream that he got, the message there, and closed his Bible up. He read the text, closed his Bible up, and stuck it under the pulpit. And I thought, oh, no, we are in trouble. And sure enough, we were in trouble because he wanted to just talk about dreams just off the top of his head and, you know, following your dream. It was nothing about that in the text. That was not what the text was about at all. And uh, I thought, I patiently waited because I thought, surely he's going to go back to this. And never did. I, I was at the point, I was really at the breaking point of just grabbing my kids and just say, let's go. And uh, when we left, one of the things that I told uh, the people there, there were, there were nice people. They were pleasant people to us. And, oh, you know, nice to have you. It was great to see your kids and your family and everything. And, and uh, we hope you'll come back. And I said, well, we probably won't be back. And they said, why? And I said, well, we come to hear the word of God. We're not here to hear this guy talk off the top of his head about dreams. I don't care about that. And so they said, well, our, our, our regular pastor isn't here. Um, and he's like what you're saying, you know, he, he, and I said, well, I'm not sure I could trust your pastor if he puts a man like this behind the pulpit. How, how would he be different? So anyway, that's just a thing. And you say, well, why are you saying that to him? Because the good news that comes at this time of year is about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach. He, the Messiah, the promised one from the garden. 
to save men from their sin. And if you have a preacher who does not preach a powerful, effectual, not a maybe it's possible kind of salvation from a real Savior, then you are not hearing the true gospel. If you're hearing a gospel that leaves all the power of your salvation in your hands, you don't know what grace is. You know what self-righteousness is. You know what makes you feel good, but you don't know what the grace of God is. You don't know what it does. So what I want to do is, and I'm going to, I'm going to probably, I don't know if I'll get to play at the end, but we played in the pre-show, uh, Dan Vask. All of you guys know that I, I really like Dan Vask. I really do. Um, he came out with, I think over sometime around Friday or Saturday, he released, um, sort of this metal version of Amazing Grace. Great rendition of the song. really is. If I get a chance at the end, we'll play it at the end too. But one of the things is, how, I don't know how many people out there have seen the film Amazing Grace. Now, it's the story of William Wilberforce, but mingled in that is a preacher named John Newton. And of course, for those of you who don't know William Wilberforce, he was the guy in England trying to stop the slave trade. See, there would have been no slaves in America had there not been the slave trade in England. And there wouldn't have been the slave trade in England had there not been the blacks enslaving the blacks from Africa and selling them to the white man. That's what was going on. Okay? Sir, so but you know, if you want to talk skin color, if that's what you're hung up on, then you got to throw them all in there because they're all involved in it. Why? Because it has nothing to do with the skin color. It has to do with the wickedness of man's heart. And by the way, the Bible says that man stealing is a capital punishment. You should be put to death for that. Okay, so John Newton was a guy who had been involved in the uh, in in the slave trade. Uh, he had his own ship. He was haunted when he became a Christian. He was haunted by the deaths and the screams and the things that the slaves went through, the stuff that he saw that he allowed to take place upon his ship, the families that were torn apart, all of that. He saw it all. And, um, and he wanted people to remember what was going on. But John Newton had this guy, and I want to just give you this little history here, and then I want to go to some scripture. So one of the things um, that he did was he helped a guy in his who was a part of the assembly for which he was the overseer, the, the shepherd. And that man was named William Cooper. It looks like Cowper, but it's William Cooper. And William Cooper was known to be very melancholic. He was very known for a lot of uh, being you know, down in the dumps. He could never see anything good, um, all of these kinds of things. And yet, you, you probably know him by this song. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. See, I can't do a Dan Vask. Sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. All right, so that's the guy who wrote that song. Okay, and he wrote it with John Newton. In fact, it's very interesting these guys, if I'm not mistaken, 
They wrote some 395 hymns together or apart, but they were doing them together. And the reason that they did them together was John Newton would come and he would spend time uh, with William Cooper, and he would encourage him to write a hymn a week, and he would do the same. And one of these hymns that he wrote was Amazing Grace. Now, I discovered this on Britannica. Uh, just show you guys. Uh, he wrote many hymns, including Amazing Grace, as an Anglican minister. Amazing Grace is part of the larger work of Only Hymns, okay, and this is the work of Cooper and him, published in 1779 that Newton wrote with the poet William Cooper. In many ways, Amazing Grace reflects on Newton's own conversion to the Anglican faith, or the Christian faith is what it should be, despite being raised a Christian. <laughs> I guess they're making distinctions here of certain things. Anyway, point is, Newton had largely abandoned the faith of his childhood until 1748. But on March 10th, 1748, Newton was steering his ship through a fierce thunderstorm when he prayed to God. And when he made it through the storm, he attributed his safety to the grace of God. It was this event that started his conversion and led to him eventually becoming an Anglican clergyman in 1764. But one of the things that John Newton did was he was not run to, one to run from his sin to hide it. He was ashamed of it, but he told it. He said it for what it was. Imagine that you're the Apostle Paul. You've been persecuting the church. You've been watching as Christians have been slaughtered, and you've been giving your approval to it because you think you're doing God a service. Do you want to tell people that when you become a Christian? I don't know what it is in modern times, but men want to relish in their sin, in their testimonies. They want to talk about how bad they were. They want to tell you all the little details of all the bad stuff they'd say, and then they want to say, Jesus changed me, he saved me, blah, 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 and there's not much else to tell. There's no talk of sanctification. There's no talk of learning obedience. There's no talk of getting to know the Father and his son, and having fellowship with them. There's no talk of the power of the Spirit of God working in their life. There's no talk about the fellowship they have with believers. There's no talk about the reaching out to unbelievers. There's no experience of that in their life. It's because they don't know the grace of God. They just don't know the grace of God. So this is a little, that's a little history, and uh, for you guys who are interested, um, there is, if you have not seen the film, uh, Amazing Grace. Again, this is by this is about. Uh, I'm dropping that in the link there. If you've not seen it, this is the uh, this is the film, and I'd highly recommend that you take a look at it. Um, it's it's a good film. It really is, and I got a pretty good pretty good rendition of of what took place there. There's obviously with any movie, you get a lot of latitude and liberty <laughs> from the uh, from the creators. You really get a lot of that from Braveheart. Uh, I would highly recommend if you have not read um gosh i forget the guy's name but he's supposed to be the sort of authority on uh william wallace uh you ought to read that because you'll get a whole different view of william wallace than what you're going to get watching braveheart okay so just keep that in mind I, I always think the movies are great for inspiring people to go beyond that to get to the real story because every movie doesn't really tell you the full truth of what's going on um in in whoever's life or whatever was going on there. But in any case, that's where the background for the, for the song for Amazing Grace came from. Now, with that said, 
one of the passages to me that speaks to God's grace the most comes from the first chapter of Ephesians. And um, one of the things that's so interesting is, and I want you to keep this in mind as we read through this, okay, is that these were new believers. They're not, they haven't been established a long time. It hasn't been decades or centuries or any of this stuff. They are new believers. The church is being established there in Ephesus. And Paul writes to them, and I want you to think, what if you were a new believer today? If you had been converted to Christ, you became a follower of the way. What would you expect to get from a mature Christian as far as a letter? What would that letter sound like? What would that look like? Would it look like, oh, I don't know, 40 days of purpose, the purpose-driven church, um, you know, pick your false teacher out there today and whatever books they got, your best day yet, or I don't know, any of that kind. Do you think you would, is that what you would get? That's probably what you would get today. That's probably what you get today, but that wouldn't be from a true shepherd. It wouldn't be from someone who really loved God and loved you when they wrote to you. Instead, you're going to get this. Now, again, this is just the introduction to the letter. I mean, really, it, that's all it is, this first chapter. And I want you to hear how it goes. It is not focused upon the listener so much as it is focused upon the God who saved the listeners. Okay? So check this out. Let's look at it. Ephesians chapter 1, if you're following along with us on the radio, and beginning at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. So notice, notice how he writes to them. He writes to them and he calls them saints. He calls them the faithful in Christ Jesus. Listen to me, believer. You are a saint if you are in Christ. You are a saint. Don't ever tell anybody that you're not a saint. You are if you're in Christ. You're a saint. Has nothing to do with the amount of knowledge you have or any of that. It has to do with whether you're in Christ or not. You are a saint. And so Paul writes to these brothers and sisters at Ephesus, <clears throat> and, sorry, got a little something in my throat there. He writes to them, and he calls them saints, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. So that's who this letter is written to, okay? It is not written to you and me. It is written to them. Keep that in mind. Grace be to you, and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So he starts, you know, his letters off like this. Grace to you, peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. How, how does that happen? Well, grace comes to us from God, does it not? We don't somehow muster that up. It comes to us from God. And then peace. What is he talking about? Jesus said, I'm not, leaving, I'm not giving you a peace like the world gives peace. No, he's given us reconciliation with the Father. Why? Because sinners do what? They sin. And what is sin? Transgression 
of the law, 1 John 4, 3. 3, 4, excuse me. It is transgression of the law, the law of God. And when you transgress the law of God, what is the punishment for that? Well, the Old Testament says, the soul that sinneth shall surely die. Okay? So what is this peace he talks about? He's talking about the peace that comes through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, him giving his life on our behalf that we might be reconciled to God and have peace. Okay? Now, he goes on and he says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Now, can you imagine new believers going, okay, what are these spiritual blessings, Paul? What is this heavenly places things that you're talking about in Christ and all? Whatever Christ has been blessed with, we have been blessed with. It's the same thing that happens with Adam. In Adam, what happened? Adam fell, and everybody that came after him were fallen too. Adam sinned, and as a result, he passed that very nature, that rebellious nature against God, onto all his children, and they passed him to their children, and here we are today. Okay? In the same manner, the second Adam, the Lord Jesus, was pleasing to God in every way. And the blessings that come to us come from Him, and they are in Him, yes and amen. All the promises that come, come from Him, including the fact that He looked upon us and love, and He drew us out of the sinful life that we were in, and He established our feet upon the rock. As the, uh, the Old Testament prophet said, you pull me out of the miry clay, you set my feet upon the rock. What do we see next? According as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. So again, let's, let's stop and think about that a second. This is a, a, a group of young believers. This is the first letter they're getting from the apostle. And so far, we don't see anything of the modern gospel in here at all. Nothing. In fact, we see a slap in the face to the modern gospel. Notice what he says. According as he hath chosen us in him, before the foundation of the world. Now again, we've talked about this before. Uh, we talked about the, the history of what was called the Remonstrance. Uh, these were the guys who followed the teachings of Jacob Arminius, and they confronted what was known as, the, or there was the Synod of Dort that decided this, and that was, the, the you had the followers of those who had been taught by John Calvin. Now, the, the names really don't mean anything. It's the teaching. Because we, you know, Scripture is the authority. Not John Calvin and not Jacob Arminius or anybody else. It's Scripture. So one of the things that it says is, is that he, cho he hath chosen us in him. 
So coming right off here of what's happening, who's made the choice? Well, we saw this in John chapter 6. All that the Father gives me, so the Father's making the choice, will come to me, and the one who comes to me, this is Jesus saying this, I will in no wise cast out, but I'll raise him up at the last day. So who's making the choice here? The Father. And he draws his people to the Son, Jesus. And the Spirit of God comes along and he quickens them or he makes them alive. Ephesians 2, that's, that's in the second chapter. He, that's God's mercy towards his people. But notice that. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Listen, friend, you didn't choose Jesus. Jesus chose you. The Father chose you. You merely responded to the work God did in your life. The new birth. You must be born again, right? And then what did he choose us for? Let's look at the, pa let's look at the passage. That we should be holy. What does that mean? Well, the word just simply means to be set, up, set apart. That we are, when we think of, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> oh my goodness. When we think of the fact that God is holy, what are, we, what are we saying? He is separate from sinners. He is not a sinner. He's not a sinner. He's holy. He is righteous. He is just. He is pure. And so we have been chosen in Christ to be holy and without blame before him. Now, what did we just talk about? Well, we talked about the fact that God is the one who is holy. He is judge. He is lawgiver. He's, he's the lawgiver and he's the judge. And how do sinners stand under him? Well, they stand condemned. We read that the other day in John chapter 3. Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn it, but that the world through him might be saved. Because why? Because the world was already condemned. He doesn't have to come to do that. He comes to save. In fact, he comes to save some of those who were condemned in that. I mean, that's what he does. And so, we're to be before him in love. And how does that happen? That is the work of God. But he goes on to tell us how it happened. Watch it. Verse 5. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Okay, so what is he saying here? Well, he's done this, that we should be holy, that we should be without blame before him in love. How, how, how did this happen? Well, he predestinated us. Now, let's just stop and think about that for a second. What does predestinated mean? Determining a destiny beforehand. That's the simple explanation. He's determined us in a destiny beforehand that we should be adopted as children to the Father through the Son. And how was that determined? Well, we're not told. We are told in Romans 9 that uh, J between Jacob and Esau, before they had done good or evil, that the purpose of election might stand, God chose Jacob. Let's just get this out of the way. 
Anybody that God chooses has nothing to boast on anyway. Because all of them are in need of being saved from their sin and from the wrath to come. All of them. So what are we seeing here? He says that he is the one who set our destiny. If you were a believer, you were that by, literally, by the grace of God. You are not that because of you. You did not become a believer because you're smarter than anybody else. You did not become a believer because you're more enlightened than anybody else. You did not become a believer because you're lovable and cuddly and cute and whatever. Nope. You were a believer because of the grace of God that was shown to you in Jesus Christ. Period. That's it. You have nothing to boast of. Now, a lot of people will say, yeah, I know I have nothing to boast of, but I was the one who, I, I did this. And I No, you responded to the life-giving work of the Spirit of God and the predestinating work of the Father and the redemptive work of the Son. You responded to that. It's kind of like a guy you, you see, and this is probably a bad illustration, but as close as I can get, you see these people where they stop breathing. They're, they're considered dead, and they give them the CPR and stuff, and all of a sudden, they start breathing again. Their heart starts beating. Well, that's in essence what goes on. Did the person give themselves life back? Or are they merely responding to what's being done to them? They're responding to what's being done to them. And that's what happens to the Christian. The Christian is, for all intents and purposes, dead, buried, and rotting, and stinking. And the Word of God comes along in the cemetery, and it, for lack of a better term, I'm trying to give a good illustration here, digs up the grave individually of those who are to be raised, and it calls them forth, and the Spirit of God calls them forth from the grave through the Word of God. It's not that the, the, the dead somehow put the flesh back on and they come out of the grave. It's that the Spirit of God does that. Look at the, look at the uh, Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones. We've talked about that before. That's the picture that you get when a preacher preaches the Word of God. The Spirit of God moves and he does with the Word what God sent it forth to do, what the purpose that he sent it forth for. So let's go back here to Ephesians chapter 1. He predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. And these are one of those secret things that God doesn't tell us. I don't know if you've had time, friend, but to ask and just say, Lord, I, I have no idea why you would have picked me, why you would have set your love upon me. I, I just, because I know me as best I can know me. And I'm not a lovable guy. I, I have nothing to offer God. I, I have nothing good to place before Him. And yet, He was the one who was merciful to me. And He did so according to the good pleasure of His will. I don't even know what that is. That's being carried out. It's being fulfilled. And one day we're going to understand exactly why He did what He did. Every little thing. We're going to understand it. But he says this, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. 
Hmm. To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accept and above it. One of the great things here is this. Why does God save sinners? I can tell you that one in, in the general sense. He does so so that he might be glorified and so that he might be praised. God is not an idolater. He doesn't do it so you can be praised or me. He doesn't do it so we can be put on a pedestal. He doesn't do it for, you know, something about us. Oh, it's for our good. Don't get me wrong. It is for our good. But it's so that he might be glorified in demonstrating the characteristic of his grace and of showing mercy. In the same manner that he leaves men in their sin and does not save them, that he might be glorified in his justice. See, he's putting all this on display to glorify himself, whether it's justice or whether it is mercy. And as we read from Romans chapter 9, he, go, he gives mercy to whom he will, and whom he will he hardens. And both are being used for the purposes of God. Now again, keep in mind, you've got, you've got the idea here that this, these are new believers. Can you imagine yourself as a new believer being told this in the first <laughs> um, seven verses? I mean, we, there's six chapters here to go. And in the first six verses, he's cutting the legs out of anything that you can boast about. Anything. Your choice, your will, your mom and dad, your spiritual enlightenment, any of that stuff. Gone. And he says this, we have redemption through his blood, or excuse me, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. There's several little things here. We have redemption through his blood. Who's he talking about? We've been redeemed. We've been bought back, as it were. Who's he talking about? Through whose blood? Well, it's the, if you follow the pronouns here, he's talking about Jesus Christ. He's talking about the one who gave his life's blood for sinners. And then he says, not only have we been redeemed, but we have the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sin. How many times can we look in the New Testament where Jesus forgave sinners? One of the pictures, one of the biggest pictures that I see is that of Mary. You remember um, Mary Magdalene and how she was a prostitute. And Jesus saved her from that. And she was so humble and so thankful and so full of love for the Lord that she would weep on his feet to wash them and dry them with her hair. Now, that sounds really odd to us today, but considering that everywhere they went, they were pretty much walking for the most part. Some of them had animals to ride, but, most, but Jesus and the disciples, as far as we can see, they didn't have animals. They were walking, they were, or they took a boat somewhere. And their feet were nasty. Not just from the dirt, but those who did have animals rode those in the street and 
they leave little surprises everywhere, don't they? And their feet were dirty. And here's this woman who's been a prostitute, who's been set free from that, forgiven of her sin, and she goes and she... The guy in the house didn't think to even get his servant to wash Jesus' feet. And she goes over there and she demonstrates that love for him, for what he's done for her, by washing his feet with the only thing she has, her tears and her hair. And you'll remember later on she comes in and she's got this, this, this costly ointment. And she anoints his head. And... Of course, Judas is like, oh, we could have sold that and got the money and give it to the poor. He wanted it for himself, of course. But, you know, that was his pitch there. And Jesus is like, let her alone. She's preparing my body for burial. That's what it is to have your sins forgiven. When they are forgiven, there is a gratitude. Bradley talks about this all the time. There's a gratitude that you have for the one who did that for you. And then he goes on and he says, this redemption... And this forgiveness of sins is according to the riches of his grace. You know, Paul talks about knowing the love of God, the depths of the love of God. Nothing can separate us from it. Do you know that we get, we receive God's love simply because he's gracious to us? The scripture tells us that we love God because he first loved us. There's a reason we love him. It's because he loved us. He demonstrated his love towards us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. So let's go back to the letter. In verse 8, According to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself. Now, I want you to pay attention to all this. Everything that Paul is writing in this letter, is it about the believers? I mean, he makes mention of them that they're recipients of certain things, but everything is about God the Father and God the Son. So far, that's what, we've, that's what we've seen. He's purposing in himself. He's the one who predestinates. He's the one who chooses. He's the one who adopts. He's the one who redeems. And it's all according to the riches of his grace, his wisdom, his prudence. And then it says this, having made known unto us the mystery of his will. the mystery of his will, according to the good pleasure which he had purposed in himself. It's the mystery of the will. All of that is leading from what we have seen throughout the Old Testament. Now, if you remember when Jesus rose again, and you go to the last chapter of Luke, I believe it's verse 44, you'll read there where Jesus tells the disciples Moses and the prophet and the Psalms, they're all talking about me. They're talking about me. The past few weeks in, um, in Sunday school, we've been talking about uh, from the Psalms, Psalm 22, Psalm 23, Psalm 33, all of these going through and seeing how they point toward Christ, because they certainly weren't talking about David. 
And I've had conversations with people, some of these black Hebrews and some of these people like that. So oh, no, he's really talking about David. This is not, there's stuff that look, there's stuff in there that David just didn't experience. Those things are talking about the Christ, the promised one from Genesis 3.15. He's the one promised back there in Genesis 3, the one who would come and crush the head of the serpent. Okay? And all of this comes upon us. Why? Because of the good pleasure of what God had purposed in himself. But this mystery of his will. You know, even the, the Bible says, even the angels look into these things to try to, they were trying to understand what was going on. And that mystery became flesh. The Lord Jesus, we read that in John 1, John chapter 1, read the chapter there. That's what it's talking about. And a matter of fact, John goes on to say some of these very things here as to how men become the sons of God. And that mystery is revealed in the person of Christ. We don't, we don't have this, this mystery like that anymore. We know what God's will is. It is to save sinners from their sin. It is to show himself strong. It is to demonstrate his grace to his people. And he even goes on and he tells us this in verse 10 that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. So what's he talking about here? Well, he's already put his king on his holy hill of Zion, Psalm chapter 2. And his king is ruling and reigning. He's not waiting to do that, folks. He is doing it now. Why? Because if you read Matthew 28, 19, 18, 19, 20, what you're going to see there is Jesus didn't go and say, well, I'm leaving the earth to the devil. You guys are just going to fight it out on your own. Is that what he says? That's not what he says. He says all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth are given to me. Therefore, why is he throwing therefore in there? Because he's fixing to tell them something, but he wants them to have the, the foundation for why he's going to tell them to do what he does. He says, therefore, go and make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to deserve all that I've commanded, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth, or the end of the age. That's what he tells them. They are to go out in the authority of Christ. Why? Because he has authority on thing, uh, of everything that is in heaven or that is in earth. The devil isn't running the show. I know some people think that. But see, this is where real faith comes in. <clears throat> for faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Let me ask you something, believer. Do you believe Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth? Do you believe that the devil's running the show on the earth? I mean, i got to ask that question. You can't hold both of them. Either Jesus is all authoritative in heaven and on earth, or he's not. I'll go with, op <clears throat> I'll go with option A. He has all authority. Sometimes we don't see it because we're too caught up in all the bad stuff. 
and we fail to recognize that he is king. Not that he will be king, he is king. He goes on from there and he says, In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated, there's that word again, I know some people don't like it, but I'm going to tell you what, um, for me, the idea of predestination and the idea of being chosen is one so humbling because I know what I was and I know I would have never chosen the path of life that I have. I would have never chosen it. I was running in the opposite direction. And to know that God loved me enough that he put his hand on my shoulder, spun me around, and put his finger in my face. And his holiness, I mean, you want to talk about what you read about Isaiah when he sees the Lord high and lifted up in his temple and his train filling the temple there, and he says, I am coming apart. I'm disintegrating. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people. of. Un you want to talk about knowing what that's? I know what that's like. I know exactly what that's like. And to know in a moment, because people like my mom and dad and other people had planted the Word of God in me, the Word of God comes back and it condemns my sin. And feeling like God is just going to wipe you out right there. And in that instant, He is not wiping you out. Oh, He's slaying you. Don't get me wrong. That's what the law does. It slays us. But then He raises us to walk in newness of life. That's, that's, that's what he's talking about here. But he says this, and whom also we've obtained an inheritance. inheritance. Huh. What kind of inheritance? Well, let me ask you something. If you have the king of the universe, what does the king of the universe have? What does he own? What does he rule over? He rules over all things. Christ, in redeeming us to God, had not only made us, had not only reconciled us and made us friends with God, but he made us heirs and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. He made us sons and daughters. He adopted us. And he did this. Let's go back to the passage. Being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his will. See, Paul wants you to understand he want he want well he wanted the Ephesian people, the believers there to understand that they are where they're at by the predetermined counsel of God. And God is doing something with them. He's carrying out the counsel of his own will, not theirs, but his in them. And he wants these new believers to believe to, to understand that. And he, he finishes that little, that little passage up, verse 12. See how things go when, when you just see the context? Now look, we could stop and we could take each verse one by one, and we could pull apart the words, and we could go throughout Scripture, and we could really expound on a lot of this. But I, I want people to see that when you just go through the Scripture, and you just stop and you think about what is he saying here? What is he talking about? Well, we can tie it back to what he said here 
you know, two verses ahead or, or behind uh, of what he was laying the foundation to tell the people here at Ephesus. It's pretty, it's pretty simple to get the gist of what's going on here. And so it says that he's worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, verse 12, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession until the praise of his glory. So what's happened here? Well, he says you did trust. It's not that God trusted for you. Uh, he did something in you and gave you the ability to trust him, which we call faith. Faith and trust, same thing. And the question is, are you trusting? Are, do you really have real saving faith? You guys have heard this illustration I've given before. Uh, we used to have one of those you know, wooden wings, uh, swing sets out back. And my kids, when they were little, uh, they would get up in the little, I don't know, I don't want to say a house part. It was just a cover. But they'd get in the cover part, and that had the slide that went down. But it had some steps there and a big opening. And I used to stand outside, and I'd say, jump to me. And I'd get close, so they'd get a little confidence in Dad, right? Because I'm not trying to scare them. But I'd get close, and they wouldn't really have to jump. They'd just have to lean, and they'd be in my hands. And there was no problem there. Every, all the kids would do it. And then I'd move a step back or something, and I'd get like two or three of the kids would do it, and one or two wouldn't. And then I'd step back, and I might get one kid to do it because they were just gung-ho. Well, who, who was really believing that Dad would catch them? Was it the children who didn't jump to me, or was it the children who did? They demonstrated their faith in their father by their works, did they not? Yes, that's exactly what they did. They put their money where their mouth was. And they said, I trust you to catch me and I don't fall on my face. And they would jump to me. The same thing is true for the believer. If you believe, you will obey. You will you'll trust the Lord and do what he says. That's what you'll seek to do all the time. So we go back to the passage. And all of this is for what? To the praise of his glory. He keeps reminding us that God is doing this to glorify himself, not to glorify you. See, that's, that's the modern gospel, which is no gospel. It wants to tickle your ego. It wants to say how good you are, how spiritually enlightened you are. How worthy of God's love you are. But that is the teaching of the Pharisees. That is not the teaching of the gospel. The gospel hammers man down. It shuts his mouth from excuses for his sin. And then it raises him up and gives him life. That is grace, my friend. That is real grace. Undeserved, powerful, effectual, and it's the gift of God. It's the gift of God. Verse 13, 
in whom ye also trusted after ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after ye believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession and the praise of his glory. Do you know why you get the Holy Spirit? Well, he tells us he's a paraclete. He is a comforter, the great comforter who comes alongside us to lead us into all truth. He comes to live inside of us. And to direct us, Jesus spoke about that in John chapter 15. Uh, we see it on uh, in Acts chapter uh, 2, where the Spirit comes and He indwells the believers there in the upper room, where they're able to come out and, and preach in different languages, uh, in, in, unbeknownst to them, and everybody hears that, that message, the praises of God and the wonderful works of God in their own language. That is the work of God. But it says we're sealed with Him. He is the earnest of our inheritance. He's the down payment. He is the guarantee that we're going to get the inheritance God promised us in Christ. And if you don't have God's spirit, you are not his. If you don't have the spirit of God, you are not his. I don't care what you say. I don't care what good works you've done. I don't care how much time you read your Bible or whatever. If you don't have a spirit, you're not his. He is the guarantee of our inheritance. And again, he goes on, unto the praise of his glory. Verse 15. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Paul has a love for these people. He, he probably hasn't spent a ton of time with them because he's been traveling around establishing all kinds of other churches in Asia Minor. But he said, I heard about your faith. I heard it's real. I heard it's genuine. And I don't stop my prayers for you, but I continue to give thanks for you. That you're obedient. And then he says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, listen to this one. This is part of what his prayers are. Maybe you want to make this part of the prayers that you have for the saints as well. And we're going to run out of time here. So we're going to go over just a little bit if you want to catch it. SonsOfLibertyMedia.com just to finish out the text here. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. We're going to run out of time there. Catch us on sunsofthelibertymedia.com. Catch Bradley at 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central, and then we'll see you back here in the morning, Lord willing, 6 a.m., bright and early. See you. Okay, want to welcome everybody coming over from Red State Talk Radio. And this is a long sentence here. It goes to the end of the chapter. So I, I had to cut off there. I apologize for that. Let me go back over that real quickly, and we'll finish this out, okay? His prayer is, verse 17, to the end of the chapter. It's like one big long sentence. This would be like how I used to write a sentence. <laughs> Uh, that this is what his prayer is, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, 
the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling, what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the, in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. So let me let, let me let me see if we, we get the picture here, and then we'll finish out what he says here. The same work, the same power that was used to resurrect the Son of God from the dead is the same power that was used on you and me to give us the new birth and to bring us to Christ. It's the same power. Why? Because it's the same Spirit. It's the same Father doing it. See, some people don't see the work of redemption in a person's life as this powerful, glorious thing. It's just as powerful and glorious and praiseworthy, I might add, as when God called forth His own Son from the grave. It's that kind of power. It is life-giving power. It is death-crushing power. It is spiritually enabling power. How many of you have thought about that? Those of you who are believers. The power that God put in you to convert you, to give you life, is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. Verse 20, he wrought it in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. You know there's a promise for us too, isn't there? Uh -huh. There's a promise that we will sit with him in his throne. There's a promise that we're going to be given a rod of iron just as he was by his father. I mean, this is this is good stuff. I mean, it's, it's, this is good stuff. It really is. And then he goes on and he says this. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world but also in that which is to come. So when Christ was lifted up, when he was exalted, and I'm going to tell you, we do ourselves a great disservice. Listen carefully to this. Uh, this, is, this is like a pet peeve for me. We do ourselves a great service with images of Jesus. Not only are we doing ourselves a disservice, I think we're engaged in idolatry. The second commandment is clear. Quoted this the other day. You don't make an image of anything that is in heaven above, that is in the earth beneath, the waters under, you don't bow down to, you just, but I'm going to tell you what, you take an artist's rendition of Jesus and you stick it in front of anybody in the West, in Western culture and they go, well, that's Jesus. No, it's not. No, it's not. Friends, Jesus isn't a baby anymore. He isn't. He isn't in his humility anymore. He isn't. He's not a man in the way we think of men. 
He is glorified. He is exalted. Listen to what Paul says. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but in the world which is to come. He's not the Jesus you read of in the New Testament. And I'm not saying he changes uh, in as far as his character or anything. What I'm saying is he is not in his humility anymore. He is glorified. And every time we bring him back to the humility in pictures and images and stuff, all we're doing is creating a Jesus that isn't who he is now. So it's not the real Jesus. He is King of Kings. He is Lord of Lords. And he has been seated in the heavenlies. And we have too. Paul says that. We've been seated in the heavenlies with him, with Christ. But he goes on. Not only is he seated above principalities, powers, mights, dominions, name, every name named in the world that is, but also that which is to come. But look at what he says. And hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. He's put all things under his feet. What did he conquer at the cross? What, what, what did he do? He says sin, yeah. Death, yeah. Hell, yeah. The gates of hell, yep. Conquered all those things. In fact, it's interesting. Let's just go to the next chapter. Again, chapters and verses are not in the letter. We do that so that we can kind of find a place to go. You know, we can say chapter 2, verse 3, or whatever, so we know where we're going to all be reading from, whatever. But if you go over into chapter 2, it picks up from there. And you, he quickened, or he hath quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. You believers at Ephesus, this is what you used to be. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You walked after your father, the devil, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in children of disobedience. You were children of disobedience because you were following your father. But notice what it started out with. And you hath he quickened. The quickening. This making alive, giving life. You he hath made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. And then he says this. He doesn't just point to you, 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 you. Now watch what he says. Among whom also we, he includes himself. You know, we brings yourself in there. We all had our conversation in times past and the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Paul links himself in here. I'm right along with you guys that I'm writing to. I'm not any better than you. God didn't save me because I was smarter than you guys, even though he probably was. He says, I was right there with you. And then he says this, But God, who is rich in mercy, 
for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ by grace, you're saved. It sounds like a lost story, doesn't it? A hopeless cause. Dead men walking around. And God who has mercy and is rich in mercy is what the text says. He's rich in mercy. He's got a lot. And he had a great love for us. Even when we were dead in our sins, he sent his son to die in our place. And then he made us alive in that same son that he resurrected from the dead. Why is grace amazing? It's completely undeserved. Completely. If we deserve anything, we deserve a Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what we, that's what we deserve. Gone. Done way with. That's what we, if we're honest with ourselves, that's what we deserve. And I hear people out there, they go, well, what, there's a God and he's loving, why does he let this? And he lets, he lets it go on because men are wicked. It's not God who's wicked, it's men who are wicked. Go back and read Genesis 1 and 2. When God makes things, it's all very good. It's perfect. And what happens? Man screws it up because he will not obey God. Even in the things of eating. He will not obey God. Don't tell me about how bad God is. God is good. Man is bad. Man is wicked. And he needs somebody to save him from his wickedness and the punishment that accompanies that wickedness. This is why Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for his people. Don't tell me about how bad God is. God is good. And Paul's just laid out how good he is compared to man's wickedness. And then let's close with this. Verse 6. And hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Isn't that what we ended the chapter 1 with? That Christ is already seated, up far above principalities. Ooh, are you getting a picture here? Huh? You seeing that class? <laughs> just... He's already been, let, let me back up just a second, and then we'll come back over here. Just to pick up what we had in chapter 1, let me slide back over here. Which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him on his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And I put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Now, read what it says here in verse 6. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in who? Christ Jesus. Where is he seated? Where did it just say? Far above the principalities. You know, all of these dominions, all of this stuff. Guess what? We are seated there with him above those things too. If he is overcome, we have overcome. And we are overcoming in this life. Let's put it that way. 
that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God just wants to... I, I don't want people to take this in a wrong way, but he wants to show off. He wants to show off who he is. That's why he does this. That he can show his goodness, that he can show his grace and the riches of his mercy toward us in Christ. He doesn't have, he doesn't have to do that. He could just dump us all in there and be glorified in his justice against us, couldn't he? But he shows off to the world his goodness through his grace he gives to us, and thereby we should go and we should preach that same gospel of grace to other sinners in hopes that, they, that the Savior might find them as well. The passage we're very familiar with, for by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship. Notice that. We didn't make ourselves. He has made us. Created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath beforehand ordained that we should walk in them. If you've not been one who's experienced the grace of God, you don't know what I'm talking about. You really don't know what I'm talking about. You might be laughing at it. Lots of people do. Until it comes to their front door. I never laughed at it. I always had respect for those who were, you know, believers. I always had respect for them. But I never knew what it was. And then just like the shepherd who leaves the 99 in the flock to go out and look for that one lost sheep, God came doing that for me. I don't say that. I don't do that to elevate myself. We just got through reading how corrupt and everything else I am. I'm no better than the Ephesians. I was dead in my sin. There was no reason that I can think of of why the Savior would come look for me, but he did. And if you were a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, guess what? You didn't go looking for him. He went looking for you. And he picked you up, and he bound up your wounds, and he gave you life, and he brought you back into the fold. And he's given you a glorious inheritance. And he's given you power over all the works of the enemy. He's given you that already. And he's given you an inheritance in Christ, of which the Bible speaks about, it's never entered into our hearts or our minds, the things God has prepared for those who love him. We can't even imagine the inheritance we have in Christ. But we know this, we're saved from our sin for the glory of God. And he didn't just leave us here to say, hey, we're saved. Verse 10, we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. We don't commit good works to get saved. That's not the issue. Saved from our sin. That's what we're talking about. We do good works because God has saved us. And it's a way of us showing our gratitude to Him by loving Him and by loving our fellow man. That, my friends, is why grace is so amazing. Going back to John Newton real quick. He was a man who 
ferried men who had been kidnapped, women who had been kidnapped, children who had been kidnapped, taken from their homes, and was engaged in the cell of those men, women, and children. Many of them died aboard his ship. And yet, it was the grace of God that came to him that turned him from a slave trader to a humble preacher and a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. What can do that? It is the grace of God. It is the grace of God. Take the gospel of grace with you. Let it be upon your lips this day. I pray that for my son when he goes off to work in the mornings. He comes in and we pray. And that's one of the things I pray. Lord, put the gospel of peace upon his tongue, upon his lips. Let the sacrifice of praise be that which comes from his mouth so that others hear and receive grace from that. Let that be upon your lips today, believer. If you're not a believer, you still remain in your sin. The grace of God is available to you. You must repent. Well, Tim, it just said he predestinated. It said he chose and this, that, and the other. Yeah, but I don't know, and you don't know if he's chosen you. But you're still responsible to repent. You're still responsible to believe. And God commands you to do so. Don't harden your heart if you hear his, heart, if you hear his voice today. Repent, turn unto him, put your faith in Christ. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Do that. You'll know what real grace is. You really will. And you'll know why. John Newton wrote those famous words. Amazing grace. Brad, guys, Bradley will be with you at 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central, sonsoflibertymedia.com. And then, Lord willing, we'll be back with you in the morning, bright and early, 6 8 a.m. Talk to you then. See ya.